singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast feature of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in one of many ways. You can uh, simply go to YouTube and leave a comment, or you can click the like button, you can write a review on iTunes, or you can simply go to singularityweblog.com and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Christine Peterson. Christine is uh, one of the co-founders and a past director of the Foresight Institute for Nanotechnology. So, uh, welcome to the show, Christine. I'm incredibly happy to have you here. Well, great, Nicola. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks. And I know that uh, you're very busy and we're kind of tight on time, so I'll jump right in. Uh, first of all, I uh, greatly abbreviated your personal uh, biography. So, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit better than what I did. <laughs> sure, I can do that. Um, I have been for many years involved with nanotechnology. I was one of the co-founders of Foresight Institute, which is the leading public interest group in nanotechnology, and I'm still heavily involved there, um, mainly doing a lot of nanotechnology conferences, probably over 30. Um, the most recent one that I was heavily involved with was held at Google. Um, the other main thing that I do is that I'm very interested in life extension and longevity. Uh, and I've had two big conferences on that called Personalized Life Extension Conference. Um, we've had a lot of people request that the conference be made more available to more people. So for this year, we're taking it as an, making it into an online conference. And uh, that's located at healthactivator.com. So we'll be having 20 sessions spread over the year. And, uh, in fact, we're showing free videos right now. So those of your viewers who are into life extension or longevity, um, those free videos are showing currently. Mm -hmm. I actually have to share with our viewers that I did watch some of those videos and I greatly enjoy them, so I do recommend them. Um, Christine, I know you've been uh, involved with nanotechnology for many years, so let me ask you, how and why did you personally get involved into that field of nanotech? I went to school at MIT, and uh, I was studying chemistry, especially biochemistry, and my, my concerns were primarily environmental at that point. Um, that was a time when people were very concerned about limits to growth, there was a lot of concern about pollution, loss of species, a lot of the same issues we're seeing today. And um, I, at the time, and still today, felt that part of the solution would be expanding uh, into the space frontier, expanding uh, off the Earth, uh, and ex uh, getting the biosphere more broadly spread out so that we don't have all our eggs in one basket. Um, then uh, I happened to uh, run into the other co-founder of Foresight Institute there at MIT, that his name is Eric Drexler, uh, and he explained to me that with nanotechnology, as he was foreseeing it, um, we would be able to get rid of pollution entirely in terms of chemical pollution, just simply not keep spreading 
uh, misplaced atoms and molecules around our planet. And to me, as someone who's into the environment, um, that made me very excited, and it still does. Um, that is still a big, huge driver to me on the why should we care about nanotechnology. Of course, the other one is medical. Mm-hmm. So then you met with Eric Drexler, and uh, how and why did you decide to start up the Foresight Institute for Nanotechnology? Well, both of us at that time could see that nanotechnology was going to be a very big deal. Um, we could see that it was going to be necessary to uh, educate many, many people about what it is, its potential benefits, uh, possible risks or downsides, how to avoid those. Um, and in fact, at that early time, even the research community was still completely ignorant of these possibilities. Um, in fact, many of them would even tell you that it would be impossible. Yes. We actually did get that quite a bit. So we could see there was going to be a huge educational task for us. Uh, and we felt that in, at that time, um, a nonprofit structure was needed. Uh, it was way too early for commercialization by decades. So mm-hmm. the right format at that point was a uh, nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So, um, as you said, one of the reasons was to sort of educate the public and even some of your colleagues who greatly underestimate the potential or even the possibility for any of those uh, nanotechnologies that were envisioned by Eric Drexler and you at the time. So, what are, what's, what's the mission statement, perhaps, and what are the goals or um, the publications and the events that the Foresight Institute for Nanotech um, uh, creates? Well, the mission is pretty straightforward, which is to uh, accelerate and promote the benefits of nanotechnology, specifically molecular nanotechnology, which means atomically precise nanotech, Mm -hmm. uh, and also to um, reduce any potential downsides, lower any risks that may be involved. So accelerate the benefits, reduce the risks. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you have... uh say, an annual publication or an annual conference or anything like that? We have um, a couple of different conference series. Uh, One of them we just held, uh, which is a highly technical research conference, really aimed uh, primarily at people who want to get deeply into the chemistry and physics and material science of this field. This is for people who are pretty technical or Mm -hmm. who, uh, really enjoy hearing the detailed nitty-gritties of the technical side. This is this is um, this is pretty challenging stuff. But we do uh, we do get people who are not not professional nanotechnologists who come also because they're intensely interested in the topic. So that uh, that's the conference we just finished. Then we have another conference series. I mentioned the last one in this series was held at Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a bit more accessible where we uh, bring in a wider variety of attendees, people who maybe don't really want to hear the, the nitty-gritty, gory details of, uh, you know, how this hydrogen atom attaches to that carbon atom, this kind of thing, mm-hmm. but who are more interested in a broader view, want to know how are things going, what's coming, how is this going to be applied, um, any societal impacts that may be expected. So commercialization, social effects. Applications to the environment, to medicine. This is a, this is a broader conference, mm-hmm. and we also would include talks uh, that relate more broadly. For example, we had a talk about uh, opening the space frontier, which is related 
uh, nanotechnology is going to help open the space frontier. So it's a it's a broader, more um, I think for your for for this particular audience, we cover singularity topics in general, mm-hmm. uh, including life extension and longevity. Um, just a wide variety, uh, artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, a wide variety of singularity-oriented topics. Perhaps uh, you should uh, help us out or sort of set the, the, the foundation for, for us by um, giving us your definition of nanotechnology. Because if anything, I've noticed that after doing 80 or 90 of this, these interviews, much of the time, the experts in the field actually do have different definition of the same terms. And, and so it seems to me that occasionally people talk about different things. Uh, so I always like to sort of lay out the foundation of what we're talking about. So what is nanotechnology in your view? Well, you're absolutely right that people use this term differently. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that any of those definitions are wrong, but it is absolutely useful to f- try to find out which one people are talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the governmental definition, it's extremely broad. Uh, basically, any kind of science and technology that is um, down under, I believe it's something like 100 nanometers, uh, which is, is uh, it, basically it's so broad that it's really not that useful, I think. Uh, it, uh, it includes too many different things that are totally unrelated. So what Foresight has always focused on in terms of our definition or our area of interest, let me put it that way, is what we call molecular nanotechnology or atomically precise nanotech. And what that means is we are looking at a technology that will enable the uh, the placement of atoms and molecules with with an, uh, a level of precision that basically is at the same scale as an individual atom. Mm-hmm. So that means um, being able to build structures where basically you've got every atom or every molecule in a designed, uh, planned out location and uh, clear structure that you planned out that you want. So we're talking about atomic precision in building larger scale objects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now going the next step, so everything so far makes logical sense in terms of your interest in nanotechnology, but then how did you make the step or the sort of jump, if you will, to life extension technologies? Well, there are a couple things. One is if you look at the original founding book, for uh, nanotechnology and foresight. Uh, That book is called Engines of Creation, and it is available free online, um, and it's still in print. It's a very popular, um, groundbreaking, pioneering type of book. And it does address how is nanotechnology going to affect medicine and our health. Uh, Basically, it projects that when the day comes that we have this ability to atomically precise, uh, to, to bring atomic precision to our technology, including inside the human body, um, there won't be actually a disease that we won't be able to tackle and eventually deal with. So this is a projection for greatly extended human lifespans. Um, now, we're not there yet. We're not close to that. But it's a pretty clear vision, and I think that someday that will happen. Um, once you get the idea that um, 
that uh, diseases, including aging, the aging process, once you get the idea that those are not uh, engraved in stone and that uh, they could, in fact, someday yield to human technology, which I think is true, once you get that idea and you really feel it, mm-hmm. then to say, wow, that's pretty darn exciting. Is there a way that it, that the people that I know and love can participate? Could I myself participate in this? Will I be able to live long enough uh, to actually be benefiting from this perspective technology? Uh, and that pushes you in the direction of saying, all right, I guess I really am going to have to uh, <laughs> care of my body, my current physical body, because this is the only copy I have, right? There's... There's no way to currently back up your body. You can back up your computer, and we all do that, I hope. Um, but if you think about it, it's very distressing that there's no way to back up your brain and your mind. There's just no way to do it. What do you, you think of uh, cryopreservation or chemical brain preservation? Great question. That was my next point, which is really the closest thing we have to a backup is to say, well, we can't make a copy There's no way to build a copy right now. All we can do is say, look, uh, we know the structure is what's important. Um, so what we need to do is, is there any way to sort of take a, take that structure and keep it in place so that uh, we don't have deterioration of this vital brain structure down at the molecular level? And, of course, that's what um, the various cryonics organizations attempt to do. We also have another type of effort now, the chemical preservation of the brain, which is um, which is another approach to trying to preserve brain structure. These are, you know, obviously non-optimal compared to a true backup of your memories and personality, but basically it's all we've got. Um, and so that's sort of where we are today with our technology. Mm-hmm. So uh, would you mind sharing with us some of your personal tips or personal uh, practices that you use to uh, sort of uh, follow through and give yourself the maximum or the optimum chance that you would um, get the, the longest possible life extension that you can? Sure, sure. Uh, some of these things that you can do are kind of high-tech and take advantage of the latest in technologies. Others of them are quite low-tech. Mm-hmm. I think we should do them all. Um, I know we're, you know, our crowd is kind of loves technology. We love to use all the latest, um, the latest breakthroughs, um, and we should do that. Um, however, many of the things you can do in the terms of um, of improving your health and and keeping your body as as healthy as possible and intact as possible are pretty low tech. So let me just sketch just a tiny hand. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, and that's why we have this conference series. But I can just give you a couple ideas. Um, one would be on the high tech side. I hope everybody watching this has had their DNA read, right? Have you had your DNA read? Me. I think I did mine about three years ago uh, with 23 and me. Wonderful. That's yeah. okay. And actually, to share to share where I am at right now, because one of the reasons why I did it was because I had very serious concerns of cardiovascular disease and lots of cancer in my family. Uh, my mother passed away at 38 um, from cancer. I was 13. 
So I had, and you know, I have prostate cancer in my, both of my grandfathers, so I was very concerned, diabetes, um, and, and I have high cholesterol too, so right now I'm, I'm doing the following experiment, which is, I did the whole month of January about 90% vegan and 10% vegetarian. Uh, now I'm doing low fat and next month I'm doing paleo and at the end of each 30 days I'm doing a, a cholesterol test and then I'll compare the baseline sort to see how which uh, diet is the best for my body personally. Wonderful, wonderful, perfect. I'm thrilled to hear you're doing that and we'll get a little more into to explain to the readers that approach, the general approach that you're using. Mm-hmm. But to, to finish with the 23andMe, you know, um, as recently they did lower the price. It is now 29, uh, excuse me, $99 flat rate. Not, they, they, for a long time they had a monthly subscription fee. Turns out people really hated that. I certainly did not like that. Um, I was I much happier. That's what I'm paying right now still, by the way. Oh, well, you might want to check into that. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, for people, uh, the flat rate, one-time flat rate is 99. Uh, now, I think, you know, if you want them to continue to, to give you new information, you probably have to pay something else. But if you just want your current results, uh, it's $99. And um, basically, all you do is spit in a tube, mail it in. It's very simple. Um, and you get access to a tremendous amount of information about your body. And uh, the important thing and why I specifically like 23andMe, although there are other firms that do this, is they have really an excellent website in terms of helping you figure out what the heck is going on here because um, there's a huge amount of interpretation that you need to uh, to do to figure out, all right, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do about it? Um, so if you haven't done that, um, I would say definitely do it. Um, and uh, no, it doesn't matter how old or how young you are, you're, you may find out something pretty important about your body uh, that will give you clues about how important is it for you to do certain things or not do other things. I found actionable information immediately in my in my uh, profile and I also gave the information to my doctors mm-hmm. and changed one of my prescriptions based on that. Mm-hmm. Which I my thought on that was, wait a minute, why didn't this doctor check this before? You know, why am I taking this prescription that's wrong for me? Why didn't this doctor ask for this data in any uh, medical is, you know, not the pers- reason I'm laughing is because, you know, I gave the same information to my doctor and he told me, yeah, if you want to waste your money, sure, go ahead and do it. Well, that tells you a little something, you know, nothing about it. Health activator is choosing a doctor. We talk about also is firing your doctor. <laughs> I have a candidate there for firing your doctor. But anyway, so yeah, so on the high tech end, there's getting your DNA read, um, and that's important. I think everybody should do that. Um, one thing that is on the high tech end that I personally haven't even done yet, it's, it's that high tech, is getting your telomeres measured. These are the, these are the, um, the caps on the end of your DNA strands. And, uh, they are related to your longevity. And, um, when you, when these things run out, that's it for you. So, um, now why, 
why would you want to want that number? Well, it turns out that there are things you can do to slow down this process. So if it turns out that your telomeres are not looking good, there that's a signal, it's a heads up for you saying, hey, you've got to deal with this. You know, you have an urgent situation here. So um, a lot of what you do is stress reduction. Um, but there are supplements you can take that are supposed to help. Uh, at least three different ones uh, that one of our speakers did it describe. So mm-hmm. I haven't even done this. It's high tech enough. I haven't even done it. So uh, yeah. probably we'll be talking uh, at Health Activator about saying, all right, we should all do this. It's a little more pricey than the DNA, but um, probably something we should all do. So those are on the high tech side. Um, and also on the high tech side, um, I would include some of the devices that you can purchase that are really useful in figuring out what's going on and optimizing your body. For example, one of my favorites is the Zio Sleep Monitor. This mm-hmm. is a device um, that gives you really detailed information about your sleep, um, the different phases, how deep it is, number of times you wake up, and it gives you an overall score. Um, and what you do with and you know this, Nicola, is you do your own experiments, right? You know, you have, they will give you, you either have some ideas about what you think might be affecting your sleep, whether it's caffeine or alcohol or staying on Facebook until too late at night. You can test, you know, you can do one week this way or a couple weeks one way, a couple weeks the other way, and see if it has an effect. Um, And it's much easier to do with a real readout, you know, with actual data rather than a very subjective measure, which is better than nothing. But um, there's nothing like having numerical data to really help you see connections. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you find out things you don't really want to, you, you, you don't want to know, but, you, you know, this is how it is. For example, I did my own experiment in a quantified self sort of way, similar to what you're doing um, with your cholesterol. And I found that, you know, that, that caffeine at 4 p.m., you got to stop doing that. You know, that's the mess. It was like, cut it out. You know, you're really messing yourself up with that. So I don't do it anymore, right? Um, do you now, do it in the morning? I do. And I'll tell you, you know, I could do an experiment now. My next experiment could be saying, all right, let's see what happens when I get rid of that. Uh-huh. Uh, I've got it down from three cups of caffeine per, di- per day to two. And then I could say, all right, what happens when I cut out the, the next one and then the next one? I haven't mm-hmm. done that, but I could. So, um, but there are many other things that can affect your sleep. Um, and then let's say you find out something does affect your sleep. For example, being on the computer until 11 at night might be a problem for you. You can either get off the darn computer or there is a product called uh F-L-U-X, it's a software product that will turn your computer light, uh, it will block the blue light in your computer monitor. So it's not as good as getting off the computer. That would probably be better. But if you're really addicted and you're, or you're working, you just can't get off, um, this will help reduce the negative effects on your sleep from being on the computer too late. So there's all kinds of great technology that you can use. Um, and I think that you know, these are very helpful devices. Another one that I get some value from is called from is called, from a company called HeartMath. That's H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H. HeartMath, and what it does is it looks at it looks at your heart rate 
And in particular, they're looking at your heart rate variability, which I don't think we should get into in detail here, but the point is as follows. Let's say you want to do some stress reduction, which we all really should do, right? And we don't really do it. One of the reasons we don't do it is let's say you want to try meditation. And, you know, what we found is there's just no question about it. If you want to live longer, you really should do meditation. I know it sounds kind of woo-woo and non-technical, but the fact is the data are just so clear. There's just no question about it, okay? So we all know kind of, yeah, you know, I really should do it. But, you know, it's so hard to know for new people. It's really hard to know if you're doing it right. And it's really hard to keep your brain from running off and thinking about work or whatever it, whatever you want to think about. It's very hard to learn this skill set. And one thing that this device called HeartMath does is it gives you an audio signal that helps you figure out, uh, it helps you learn the process of bringing your mind into the right state for doing meditation. Um, it gives you different audio signals depending on if you're partway there or if you're all the way there. So for a new person, this is a tremendous benefit to, to actually be guided into learning to do this because it's not easy if, if you don't know how to do it. It's, it, you can be kind of frustrated and, and give up. And I think a lot of us do that because it's so hard to know whether you're doing it right. You know, am I doing this right? And you know, if you're thinking that, then you're not, right? You're doing it wrong. So there's a problem. This device, I, you know, I'm a big believer in technology to help us do whatever we're trying to do. So, it, you know, even though we're trying to do something very non-technical, meditation, there, it, this device actually helps you do it. So to me, it's like, well, that's awesome. You know, I really need that. So that's another type of thing that we do talk about is, um, you know, what are the technological aids to helping us do the stuff that we know we should be doing? Um, and then last are things like diet, which you're experimenting with already. Um, and it's really, it's the, I call them the diet wars because as you found, you know, let's say you have high cholesterol as you do, you'll have people vehemently disagreeing about how to, what to, how to deal with that. You'll have the vegans say go vegan and you'll have the paleo people say go paleo. These are totally different diets, very different. So the only way to figure it out is exactly what you're doing, Nicola, which is to experiment. Um, now, um, you know, this is relatively low-tech, you know, just choosing your food, but the, the key is to doing the testing, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, changing your diet is, is uh, low-tech, but monitoring the effect uh, using whether it's blood tests yeah, or... Yeah, I do a blood test the last morning of, of, of the last day. Great. That's perfect. So um, there are other things you might want to test where um, you take other samples like saliva or other things. Um, we're also learning more and more about the microbiome. These are the, the bacteria that live inside you. It turns out these things are very important, and we're just starting to learn what, you know, what do you want in there? What do you not want in there? Is there any way to change what's in there? This is tough stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we are exploring it, and it's fascinating stuff because there are actually more cells in, in your body that are bacterial than you have cells of hu that are human, so it's fascinating. Yeah. Some idea of the range of kind of stuff. That I'll just throw out one more thing, and then we'll move on, which is here's the least technical thing. We have had – it's becoming increasingly clear that 
things like gratitude, forgiveness, uh, these types of emotions play a huge role in your in the well in your health and your well being and and um, that you know I don't know of any technologies here to help us deal with those, but the fact is that um, that they make a tremendous difference. So Zen we, Buddhism. <laughs> Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism, yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so human relationships, you know, close friends, romantic relationships, all these kinds of things make a huge, huge difference. Mm-hmm. So, we are starting to explore that. It is, it is obviously very, um, it's very soft information, but the fact is it makes a huge difference in your health. And so even though it's kind of hard to wrap your head around and there aren't any gadgets really that help that much, um, do address those. Trying to get a handle on, all right, how important is this? And if, if you aren't where you want to be, how do you get where you want to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, for our uh, audience for a second here, I would in, uh, I would uh, put in the in the show notes links to my interview with uh, Dr. Terry Grossman, where we actually went through uh, much of that same material from his point of view too, discussing uh, his book, the book that he wrote with Ray Kurzweil called Transcend, where they give you all those steps to uh, uh, sort of catch the, the, the what they call the bridges to the next technologies. And also, uh, one of my most popular, actually, articles on the blog is my review of the 23andMe process, where I recorded with a camera how the whole test works, so I would include that to the show, too. But let, let us move on um, and go back to, to nanotechnology here for a moment. And let me ask you this. Christine, should we fear nanotechnology? Well, I think we can ask that question uh, about pretty much any technology, and I think that um, for any powerful technology, there are uh, abuses. Um, in fact, if you look back in the history of technology, m- even the ones that are that seem really benign, like the canning of food, was originally a military technology. That's what it was invented for. So, um, but I don't think fearing a Fearing a whole area of technology is really the right way to come at it. Um, what we need to do is to look at uh, is to look at straight in the face, and look at it all in all its aspects, uh, the positive, the negative, and say, "All right, this is coming. It's clearly coming. There seems to be very little question about that." Um, oftentimes, it comes faster in the military space just because they are very you know there's huge. There's huge, a lot of funding. There's a lot of push on that end to um, to promote technology. So um, I don't think fearing a huge technological space and revolution is really the the way to deal with it. Um, I think uh, though, the more you dig into nanotechnology, especially the um, the, um, the potential use in warfare or or terrorism, anything like that, is um, there is a certain amount of fear. There's some there the just as there's happiness about the potential benefits, there's also some fear. So, uh, but I think we have that about any technology, any powerful technology. And the, the fear just helps push you in the direction of saying, hey, let's deal with this. Let's address this. You have, that's the only sensible thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. On the on the reverse side, then, uh, what's the most inspirational thing uh, for nanotech in your view? Well, I think um, there are three main viewpoints on that. Um, the original one that excited me was the environmental uh, applications, which the idea of actually restoring Earth's biosphere to um, to uh, a, an excellent state, getting rid of chemical pollution, restoring uh, habitat, um, protecting and even bringing back from DNA, if necessary, um, extinct species is very exciting. Um, secondly is medical. Um, you know, we all have in our families, we all have cancer, heart disease, you name it, uh, mental, even mental illness, and say, hey, that is not necessary, even aging, <laughs> say, hey, that's not necessary. Pretty exciting. And then finally, for some of us, it's the space frontier. It's, wow, you know, the idea of using that lengthened lifespan to uh, bring the biosphere out into space um, is just extreme. You know, being part of that wonderful frontier is very exciting to many of us. And so, you know, to some of us, we look at all three and go, wow, it's hard to pick one. These are all wonderful things. Mm-hmm. Christine, I want to move on to a couple of um sort of different questions here. Um, you know, one of my most merciless critics uh, of this show is my wife, and her most merciless, most regular criticism is that I don't have enough women on my show. Uh, actually, in fact, it's very rare. Probably the ratio out of 80 interviews is probably I've had five or six women so far. So... Um, And my regular excuse is that, you know, I'm just working with whatever I have. I mean, I'm just trying to find the experts in the field, like you, and it just happens so that, you know, there are so many men versus so many women. What would you like to say about that criticism and my excuse? Um, Well, I've had the same problem because I run conferences on uh, nanotechnology and related topics. And, of course, I would like to have more diversity um, not just uh, women, but also it would be great to have minority members, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be wonderful. Um, and the, the challenge for us is that if you look out into these spaces of, of you know, who's active in these areas, it is mostly men. Um, and the problem, of course, is not it's not our fault. The problem goes back, uh, well, there's uh, multiple issues here, whether it's the educational system or cultural factors or, or in some cases, just personal preferences. They do vary, right? Um, you do find more. There are, there are professions where there are more women than men. Um, so um, I'm not sure that she should really be blaming you. What you with her is, hey, you know, if you think there's a lot of women out there or minority members, for that matter, who should be on the show, uh, give me a list. <laughs> Solve this problem, that would be wonderful. I think we'll see pretty quickly that it's really hard. Um, so that would be one way to come at it. I don't think it's your fault, and it's not. Uh, Thanks. I think that's a fantastic suggestion. <laughs> well, let me know how it goes. Hey, if you find anybody in nanotech, let me know. Always- uh, absolutely. Uh, another issue that I wanted to bring into our conversation is open source. Now, I know that you have been 
uh, credited with naming or, or coining the term. Would you mind sharing that story with us, how it happened and how, you know, what did you mean originally by it? Right. Well, if you recall, prior to the term becoming more popular, um, the most popular term that was used before that was free software. Um, and for people who understand that, so- that term, it's a great term because what, the, what, what they mean by that is they don't mean free as in zero price. What they mean is free as in freedom. The free, by free software, they mean the freedom. The software is free to be changed to be used, to be changed, to be passed along to others. Um, unfortunately, even though to, to old-timers that, that, was, that was clear, to new people coming into the space, all they thought it meant was zero price. And that really wasn't helpful uh, because there were companies, small, tiny startup companies, that were trying to sell uh, open, uh, what we now think of as open-source services and open-source software and you simply couldn't sell anything that had the term free in the name. You just can't do it. People, there's two reasons. One is it says it's free right in the name, so you're not going to pay anything for it. And secondly, uh, there is an attitude in business that you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. Zero price, then it must be garbage. This was the attitude at the time. Um, both pretty understandable. And so uh, a number of us, not just me, but a number of us felt, you know, this is this name is a problem. It's great for the old timers. It's not good for the new people. It's not working at all. So we all knew this this had to be fixed, um, and we were kicking around different terms to, to try. And uh, this was just the one that I threw out there, and it happened to be the one that caught on. People just started using it, and it took off uh, really fast. So. I think the reason it caught on was not that it's a perfect term, but that the previous term had this big problem, and this was a way to deal with it. So my evil follow-up question to that one is that, you know, I am aware that you're using an Apple laptop to conduct this interview with me, and yet at the same time you're the person who coined the term open source. So don't you find that there might be some kind of a tension or friction? I mean, Apple is especially in the last five years, pretty much <laughs> the arch enemy of, of open source, or at least it's perceived to be. Yeah, there is a tension. And basically, as you know, I mean, the term that they use is walled garden. Mm-hmm. Apple um, products are all, they're a walled garden. They're, they're closed off. You can't get anything. You can't, you really can't change anything. It's a very controlled system. Um, so it totally is. And, um, you know, in, I would personally, if I could, um, I would love to use an open source system. Um, but I am not a computer person at all. Really, I'm not. Um, and so what I need are very simple systems that just work. And Apple is as close as it comes to that. So there is totally, uh, there is absolutely a, um, a tension there. And, I would love it if Linux or some other open source um, universe were to become as easy to use as the Apple products are. But, you know, it's probably not going to happen, right? I mean, there's, it's, the benefits of open source are different from the benefits of a walled garden. They, each one has its pros and cons. So I'm just not sure that open source is ever going to get to be as smooth 
and, and easy to use as as uh, as Apple products are. I just don't know. It would be great if they were. Well, I'm more optimistic on that myself. I mean, I I am a Windows user myself, but every couple of years I do a test run of Linux. And um, every time, because philosophically speaking, just like you, and I am a computer guy, I build my own computers. I put them together myself. Uh, But at this point, it's not there yet. But every time that I do a test with it, I see how much it's come you know, and, and, and how much closer it is to that moment. So I'm expecting the next iteration of my next desktop here would be totally running Linux. Well, great. I'm thrilled to hear it. And <laughs> so, as you can imagine, though, if somebody like you, who's really a computer guy, is not yet on Linux, it's like somebody like me has no chance, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. wait until if you come to me and you go, all right, Christine, it's time. Hey, that'll be very exciting for I just haven't been hearing that. Yeah, no, I understand that there would be another couple of years delay from, say, the geeks and and then to the general public, right, because for obvious reasons, I think. Uh, But time is advancing here, so let's move on to the last three or four questions that I have for you today. And that's, let me ask you, what's your take on the technological singularity? Well, that's another, as you know, I'm sure you know this, so that's another term people use differently, right? I've seen like 11 or 12 different definitions, so I guess it would depend on which one you're talking about. Um, uh, let's just try to throw out a couple different ideas. One is some people use it to mean the arrival of machine intelligence, which is um, greater than human intelligence. And that does seem to me to be something that's going to happen. I don't know when. Um, I know Ray Kurzweil has a, a, a date, which I think is very gutsy of him, but I don't have a date myself. But it does seem to me to be something that will happen someday. Um, and certainly on that, when that happens, things could change very quickly, and um, a lot of decisions that human beings are making now could be made by these uh, new entities. A kind of a scary scenario, really. Um, so I do think that the effort to um, to come up with something uh, that is a, a, pro, a, a human a human friendly uh, type of AI um, would be is a good idea, which is why I've been involved with the singular. I'm one of the advisors for Singularity Institute, which recently changed their name to Machine Intelligence Research Institute. So I'm a supporter of that effort, uh, and then. Um, Another definition I've seen is um, a time of technological change where change is so rapid that it's basically you can't see anything beyond. You can't even begin to think about what will be on the other side of it. Um, I'm not sure. It's an interesting idea. I'm not 100% sure that's the right way to think about technology because, you know, what you could do is say, hey, come on. There, we can we can say some things. Um, we can look at physical law. We can look at the process of evolution. We can look at the laws of economics, and and begin to try to think of what the world might look like on the other side. So I'm not sure that that particular definition is extremely useful, but um, fun to think about. But um, of kind of heads you off from thinking about anything. It's saying, don't think about this, which I think our crowd kind of, I don't want to be told 
think about something. But that's like the, the, I think, who was it? Was it Daniel Dennett or was it David Chalmers? I'm trying to remember who wrote the article, what it is to, about the bat in the 1970s. Uh, and where, you know, the idea was, you know, can you really know what it is like to be a bat? And the answer is, of course, if you're not a bat, then the answer is no. Because, I mean, you can hang upside down all you want and you can think and imagine what it feels like to be a bat, but in the end of the day, you're a human imagining to be a bat, right? So the only way to know is to become a bat. And likewise, after the moment that you have superhuman intelligence, right, the only way you can know and talk and describe that is if you were to have superhuman intelligence. If you don't, then... That's that disconnected issue, then that's that sort of black hole, that event horizon border, that radical change idea. But uh, so, so I get that you're skeptical on that end, but uh, how about on the machine intelligence end? What about it? Are you skeptical or, or you, you said that that's going to happen and do you think? I don't want to use the term skeptical about really about either one of those because um, I'm I'm certainly not skeptical of machine intelligence at all, and I think that will happen. And it, I'm not so much skeptical about the other point. I think your point is excellent. It's true. We can't we cannot comprehend what it will be like to be a superhuman intelligence. Um, it's just that this idea. I just don't, I don't like being discouraged from thinking about things. <laughs> no, I sympathize with that entirely. Yeah. I, I don't disagree here. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. So, Christine, we only have about a couple of minutes left here for the interview. So I would ask you uh, the very last questions that I always ask my guests. And the first one is very simple. Where can people find more information about you and your work? I would say two places. For the nanotechnology part... You want to go to foresight.org. That's the English word foresight, F-O-R-E-S-I-G-H-T, and then mm-hmm. dot org, mm-hmm. Institute. And you'll find uh, a wealth. It's a big website. You'll find a lot of information there about nanotechnology. Um, for the life extension, uh, longevity, or health orientation, that uh, that area, the right place to go for that is uh, a website called Health Activator. So that's the word health and then A-C-T-I-V-A-T-O-R dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go there now, you'll find that at least as currently as we're filming this, um, we're doing our free video series. Uh, and then we'll be doing 20, uh, 20 online conferences. So uh, it would be great to see some of your folks on the conferences. That would be really fun. Absolutely. And um, I can actually think of... Uh broadcasting them are you going to stream them live or what's the plan that's yeah. right okay yeah so i can repost them too on the blog um, whenever that day comes that's mm. fantastic um okay so the the last question then is um if people were to take a single message from this interview with you today what would you like that to be i think i would like to promote a message of optimism saying hey there's potentially a wonderful future out there coming from technology, uh, science and technology, over the next few decades. Um, we do need to work to bring that, to bring technology to the to the areas that we want it to be in, and not for other purposes. So, 
Uh, I would encourage everyone to get involved, whether it's through Foresight or Health Activator or Machine Intelligence Research Institute, any of these various organizations and many others, which are actively trying to, to push the future in a positive direction. So I'd say, hey, join us. <laughs> Christine Peterson, thank you very much for spending 45 minutes with us today. Thank you, Nicola.